Well, open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter five. With our family worship, it's gonna be a little louder, a little more active, so I'm gonna be a little louder than usual, a little more active maybe. Uh, try to offset that, uh, so it'll, it'll be fine. Do you remember, speaking of kids in here, do you remember when you were a kid and your mom or your dad would lean you up against maybe an inside of a closet wall or the door post of the closet and then they would measure your height? Do you remember how high you stood and every time, sometimes you just sneak a little bit and get up on your tiptoes? Why? Because you, you wanted to grow. You remember how exciting it was to see how much you had grown since the last time they measured you? Remember that? You remember how disappointing it was if there was little to no progress or growth at all? The fact is, growth is exciting and stagnancy is not. If we were able to lean you up against God's doorpost and we were to measure your spiritual growth over the last couple of years, would there be excitement because of the growth that has taken place or would there be disappointment because of the stagnancy you know it would show? I think that's a question that we should ponder. Growth is exciting and growth is even expected. And yet growth is not always apparent. I heard about a little boy who fell out of bed and his mom rushed upstairs to check out what was going on, asked him what happened. He said, I don't have any idea. I guess I stayed too close to where I got in. I think that's how a lot of Christians are. We stay too close to where we got in. We don't move forward. We don't progress in the Christian faith. And I think there are at least two thoughts that kind of contribute to that, kind of wrong thinking, that that really become obstacles to our spiritual growth and our spiritual maturity. The first is that growing up is just showing up. Some people think that just Showing up is growing up. Growing up is just showing up. And their thought is, if I show up to Sunday service and show up to Bible study and and show up to serve every once in a while, that that is the indicator that I'm growing or that I'm spiritually mature. I don't mean to be mean. I don't mean to point fingers. But some of the most immature people I have ever pastored would never miss a Sunday morning service or a Bible study or a business meeting. Some of the most immature Christians I've ever pastored held important roles and positions in the church. It wasn't an indicator of their spiritual maturity. It didn't enable them to really grow. And so though that, that thinking of just showing up means growing up isn't the case. Spiritual growth is intentional, it's not accidental. Spiritual growth takes some work. Spiritual growth typically takes place when no one else is around, when, when it's you and the Lord, when you can get real and are real with yourself and with Jesus. 
A second wrong thought that I think leads to an obstacle, not only growing up is just showing up, but growing older means growing up. Oftentimes it is longevity equals maturity. Well, I've been here a long time. Obviously, I'm I'm a mature believer. Don't confuse gray hair with godliness, okay? Now, you hope that's the case. You hope that people with gray hair are godly, but that's not always the same thing. That It's not equal to. Gray hair doesn't equal godliness. That's a problem. Because sometimes you expect someone who is older to be more mature, but it always isn't the case. And so that's the theme of what we're talking about today. The Bible tells us over and over and over again, grow up, grow up, develop spiritually mature. Matter of fact, look at the top of your notes. Ephesians chapter four, verse 15 says, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. 1 Timothy 4, 15, think about all this. Work at it so everyone may see you are growing as a Christian. You see, your walk with Jesus, while it is personal, it is not private. Sometimes people, I don't, I don't really show that. I don't really talk about my, my faith. I don't really talk about Jesus or Christianity because that's, that, that's private. It's not supposed to be. It's personal, but it's not private. It is to be something that everybody can see as you grow. It should be, if people who are around you the most, it should be noticeable, it should be observable. They should be able to see, man, I, I can tell a difference. I can see and measure over time. Maybe it's a year, maybe it's two years, but it should be noticeable that you are growing. Why is spiritual growth and spiritual maturity so important? Because spiritual immaturity has a devastating effect on people, on families, and even on Nations, And so God doesn't give it as an option. It is not a suggestion. Spiritual growth is a command. He says, grow, develop, be intentional with it. So that's the theme today, spiritual maturity. We are essentially, this is part two of Scott's really strong, great message last week. And what we have done, we've gotten to a part of Hebrews. This is the third of five warnings. Remember, he's writing to these Jewish Christians are really struggling. They're thinking about abandoning Christianity and going back into their old ways and their old religion of Judaism. And he's warning them. And warning one was don't drift from God's word. Warning two was don't doubt God's word. What we have here is warning number three is don't be dull to the hearing of God's word. When we talk about hearing God's words, not just with our ears, hearing is hearing, believing, and obeying. What he's saying is that maturity takes place when we don't doubt, when we don't drift, and we're not dull to hearing, believing, and obeying God's word. 
And that's the last part of chapter five. So let's look at this. Let's kind of get a little running start. We're gonna hit mainly the first three verses of Hebrews chapter six, but let's kind of get a little running start and be reminded because he starts at the end of chapter five, verse 11. We have so much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who are by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Let's stop there for a moment. Let's kind of go over just a little bit. Maybe you didn't hear the message last week or it's just a reminder for you. He points out a couple of symptoms of spiritual immaturity. And one of those is being underdeveloped. Underdeveloped. It's really maybe even delayed development. Look what he says. In verse 12, in fact, by though this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. See that the elementary truths, we would call this the ABCs. This is, he says, you have the need, even though you have been a Christian for a long time, you need someone to teach you the ABCs of the Bible all over again. What he's saying is spiritual maturity or spiritual immaturity is the sign and, and, and shows itself through delayed development, just underdeveloped. Those of you who are parents, you understand this. You take a child, you take your baby to the pediatrician. How many of you are currently in that stage of life? You need much, much prayer. I was not a big fan of the first year of our, any of our children's life. Uh, big fan of them now, but it was touch and go for the first year. <laughs> Babies aren't my thing. I love your baby, but I had challenges with my own. But you remember those days you take a baby to the pediatrician and they measure if they're doing all right. How does a doctor determine if your baby is progressing normally? Well, there's standards, right? There are norms that have been established over time. Now, every baby is different, but there are some norms. There are some things. So they check out the weight and check out the length or the height and other vital signs. And they can tell if there is a normal progression, normal growth that is taking place. If you have a five-year-old who still weighs 15 pounds, that's a problem, right? And it's not the norm. There is a growth issue. Now hear me. Infancy is a wonderful thing for infants, right? 
If you're a grandpa or grandma and you have a baby in your in, infancy is wonderful, right? Infancy is wonderful for infants. Babies are a blessing at the beginning. But if they were babies for a couple decades, that might be a problem, right? You might not have another one. That would turn that little baby from a miracle to a monster real quick. And so that's what he's saying here. Under development happens when we stay babies. He's saying this Hebrew writer, you've been saved for 20 years. By the time he writes this letter to these Hebrew Christians in Rome, they've been saved for a couple decades. And he says, even after a couple of decades, you have been saved for years and years. You still need someone to lay the foundation again. Can you imagine if you're building a home and you build your foundation and, and then you go away for a couple of months and then you come back and, and, and you say, man, that was so much fun. I'm gonna do that again. And you lay the foundation again and, and you leave it for a year and you come back and you say, you know what? I, I, I'm gonna lay the foundation again. Said so that's ridiculous. Exactly. And it's ridiculous when someone who has been a Christian for years and years and years, and yet they have not developed even the foundation to be strong enough and shored up enough that they can build on top of it. They're still requiring the ABCs. There are some people who hate it if they come to church and they have to think. Why, why, why can't you just be more simple? Now, the thing about preaching is you have every kind of type of person at every different level, and so you're wanting to make sure to try to hit every level. But what we don't wanna do is always put it down here that you never have to reach up. You never have to be stretched. If you come to church and you just never wanna think, some of you, no one would accuse you of that, I'm sure. But you should, you should be thinking, you should be. I would way rather someone leave mad about what I said because it was very clear than them just walk away and really didn't even hear what was said. They, they weren't challenged whatsoever. And so there are things that I say, I know they're gonna be challenging and I mean them to be because I want you to be thinking about that and I want you to try to prove me wrong. And sometimes it happens, but it's rare usually because I've studied this for 20 hours and you've looked at it for two minutes. And so usually people are like, oh yeah, well, I got mad for nothing. You were right. But it challenged them and it, and it took some growth. Paul addressed this same issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. If someone calls you a big baby, is that a compliment? You big baby. That's not a compliment, right? So you're acting immature. You're, you're, you're acting like an infant. You should have grown out of this by now. Worldly Christians, rather than being controlled by and led by the Holy Spirit. He says they are controlled by and led by their feelings and their own desires. 
Again, let's go back to babies. If you are a parent, have been a parent of a baby, you know they are demanding, right? Can I get a witness? You're all looking at me like, that's not my experience. (laughs) Babies are demanding, right, Jennifer? They don't care about your feelings. They're not considerate about your schedule. They're not wondering if you're getting enough rest, if you're eating correctly and properly. Are you getting exercise? They don't care. They only care about themselves. That's what they are concerned about. That's what they're thinking about. And so when they're hungry, they want to eat now. When they're tired, they get grumpy and fussy. When they wake up in the middle of the night and they want attention, they have no problem screaming bloody murder until you come in there and give them what they want. Now, we tolerate that from babies. Why? Because they're babies. They don't really know any better. But good parenting, we, we teach them and we train them and hopefully they start growing out of that. If your teenager is still acting like a baby, oftentimes it's the parent's fault. That's a whole different sermon. <laughs> so we're not gonna go there, but we could. So babies are only concerned about their, only des- their own desires, their own feelings. Now you put that into the church and you have a bunch of babies. Now, every church that's doing the work, the gospel work God's called us, we should always have babies. And I'm not talking about physical babies, that's that's a good thing, but I'm talking about spiritual babies. We should always have infants. And so there should always be milk being given out. Infants are great when they're supposed to be infants. But the problem is that we have many in the church, and I'm talking about the church, so that I don't try to get, you know, why were you looking at me? I gotta look at somebody. <laughs> people always do that. You were talking about fat people and you were looking straight at me. What were you thinking? <laughs> in the church though, you have immaturity. You have people who, who really should be teenagers spiritually acting like two-year-olds or some who have been Christian for decades. And really there is no evidence whatsoever and all they think about is themselves. What they want, what they like, what they see, what they think should be happening. It's primarily about themselves. And Paul says, this is dangerous. You you realize that spiritual infants are like bombs. Typically they go off and they're not concerned about who else get hurt. A lot of times spiritually immature people do not care how much pain they have to inflict on the rest of the body in order to get what they want. And it's troubling and it's difficult when you have a bunch of big babies who are constantly thinking about themselves and clamoring about themselves and not concerned about how much pain they inflict on the body of Christ just so long as they get what they want. 
And that's what Paul is talking about. The problem is an underdevelopment. He says, you should be so far along, so much more mature, but you're struggling with these issues because you're underdeveloped. Could it be that some of the problems in your life, some of the problems that we might have in our church simply because we're underdeveloped, we should be so much farther along, but we're still laying the foundation over and over and over again. He says the second symptom here is not only underdevelopment, but the second symptom of spiritual immaturity is undernourished. There's a restricted diet. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with milk. Milk's a good thing. Milk is great for a baby. They're not able to digest anything more than that. They're not ready for for solid food. But there comes a time as that infant grows, he or she has to move on from milk onto meat. And if they don't, if they spend years just on milk, obviously there's gonna be a problem. There's gonna be an undernourishment, malnourishment. They need more than milk, they need meat. I'm not trying to get too uh, vivid or graphic here, but I, I have to tell you a story. And uh, it, this was years ago, I was watching my kids at a park. I'm sure mom said, you gotta take them somewhere. I don't care where, just take them. So it was dad's day out with the kids. We were at the park and I was sitting there and I was watching the kids on the playground equipment and there were other parents uh, doing the same. And all of a sudden, I don't know where this, I would say five-year-old comes running up to his mom. Mom, 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 I'm thirsty. To which she promptly lifts up her shirt and he begins to nurse. There is a lot I could say about that. (laughs) But I am not uh, qualified. (laughs) I was shocked. (laughs) I didn't want to see that. I didn't need to see that. I had to think about sandpaper just to scrub that out of my brain. (laughs) But again, I'm underqualified, but but there was a, a moment I thought, you know, I am not a doctor and I don't know how good or bad that is for the child, but if, if someone is old enough to ride a bike, <laughs> that's my principle now. If you're old enough to ride a bike, you shouldn't be nursing, right? Can, nursing moms, come on. Can, can I get a witness right here? If you can chew a steak, Now again, I'm not overly qualified. This is just personal opinion. But do you get the point? There are people who have been saved for five, 10, 15, 20 years. Wow, I'm thirsty, I'm hungry. And what they can't go beyond mama's milk. And he is saying, it's undernourishment, it's underdevelopment, and it doesn't just hinder you. 
See, we are connected together, right? We're, we're a body. And when one is strong, but you are linked to several that are weak, who should be strong, but they refuse. Or who think it's even worse. When some people who think just showing up is growing up or the, because I'm growing older, I must be growing more mature. And they're not. One of the hardest things is not dealing with people who are immature. It's dealing with people who think they're mature, who are immature. That's the challenge. And he is saying here, it's a symptom. It's a symptom in our lives. It's a symptom in our nation. And it's a symptom in our churches that we have undernourished people, spiritually speaking. And they can only handle milk. And they can't handle the meteor things that builds strength and more strength and builds muscles. When an adult goes into a hospital and they have to go on a liquid diet, been there? Because they can't ingest and digest solid food. It's because they're sick. When you have a spiritual person who should be a spiritual adult, but they can't ingest or digest meteor things, it's because they're sick and they need help. They need growth. Now, here's an appropriate question, I think, that leads out of this then. What are some, what are the basic things? What are the foundational truths that every Christian should know and should be practicing so that they can have a firm foundation that they can build on top of. Well, I'm glad you asked because that's what he talks about in Hebrews chapter six, verses one through three. He says, we need to move on from these elementary things. And then he lists them. Now, I want you to hear these because for some you're saying, that's elementary? I thought they learned that in seminary. These are the elementary things that we are to learn and then the foundation is grown. You don't have to go back and rebuild the foundation and rebuild the foundation and rebuild the foundation and and more foundation. You, You set that and then you build off of that. But the problem is many of us, we have the foundation, we've left it, we've built a foundation. We just kind of keep fortifying the foundation and not building on top of it. What are the things that are the foundation? What are some basic doctrinal truths that all of us, if you're a believer, should know and should practice? Well, look at the first three verses. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance. So here he goes. He's starting to get into the elementary things, the foundational things, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. Did you see these foundational truths? Now he really gives us six, but he puts them in couplets. What that means is these couplets are categories. You might have six basic doctrines here, but they are couplets, therefore they're in a category, they go together. 
And one category, the first category, has to do with our relationship with God. The second category has to do with our responsibility as the church. And then the third has to do with our readiness for the future. Something typically that happens in the past, something happening in the present, and something that is something that we look forward to. So let's hit these real quick. So first of all, our relationship with God, repentance of sin and faith in God. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings of Christ, about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. That's sin. For the wages of sin is death. Repentance from sin and faith in God. Now, understand. Now, again, this is laying the foundation. For many of you, if not most of you who are believers and have been for a while, this should be stuff you know. This is ABCs. This is the alphabet. This is the, the very core and fabric of our faith. Repentance of sin and faith in God is not how only how we enter into a relationship with God and become a part of the family of God. This is how we stay in right relationship with God. Repentance of sin and faith in God. So it gets me in. Now remember, he's been saying, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is the one who came out of heaven. Jesus is the one who is eternal. Jesus is the one who is better than all the angels and all of the prophets. Why? Because he's the one who is God and Lord's overall. And so when he says, trust in God, faith in God, he's talking about Jesus. Faith in Jesus is faith in God. Faith in God is faith in Jesus. Now, he says repentance of sin. What is repentance? Repentance, Greek word metanoia, means to be going one way and turn around and be going the opposite way. When I turn, I am repenting. The military, we call this about face, right? About face, we are going the opposite direction. I was going in the wrong direction. I was going against God's will. And now I am turning, I am repenting, and I am going and I'm walking in God's will. There was a time when I was stubborn and obstinate, and now I'm open and teachable. I was proud and arrogant, but I repented and, and now I'm submissive, pliable, and humble. I was critical and doubting, and now I've repented, and now I'm hopeful and expectant. Repentance is turning around and going the opposite direction. I was walking away, and now I'm walking toward, going in the will of God. That's what he's talking about. Now, there are three specific parts of repentance. There is confession, there is contrition, and then there is change. Some people think repentance is just feeling really bad. And oftentimes it's only feeling really bad I got caught or feeling really bad that I hurt somebody else. That's, that's not all what repentance is. It is confession. So I have to own it. 
Sometimes people want to say they're sorry, but they don't own their sin. They don't say, I was wrong. That was wrong, what I did or what I didn't do. There are sins of omission and sins of commission, things I do and things I don't do. I have to own it. Confession says, God, you're right, I'm wrong. What you said is true. What I did was wrong. I confess that. I own that. You are right. I'm wrong. I broke your commands and I broke your heart. You are my father. I I confess I'm wrong. That's confession. It's owning it. It's sin. It's waywardness. It's evil. But contrition is that remorse. Uh, You watch enough shows, you watch enough court shows, you have people who might confess, but they show no remorse. Have a hard heart. They backed into a corner and they can't get out, so they say, yeah, I I did it. I don't feel bad about it. Contrition is a part. When I'm confessing to God, I am broken over it. I am sorry for it. Sometimes accompanied by tears. I know I broke the heart of God and that breaks my heart because I broke his. It's contrition, sorrow. It's a godly sorrow. But there's a third part that is mandatory with true repentance. And that is change. There's no way to say that I confess, I confess, I confess. And I am so sorry, so sorry, so sorry. But there's no turning. True repentance is always accompanying with a change. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. doesn't mean you're never going to sin again. You know what repentance is? Repentance means I'm not going to stay in my sin. That's what true repentance is. Because I'm turning and I was going this way and now I'm going this way. I'm not gonna be sinless, but we should sin less and less, particularly in the same ways. At least try some new sin. <laughs> How's that for permission? <laughs> try something else. You've been doing this and now you're turning this way. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm, I'm repenting, I'm not going back. Matter of fact, repentance is the way that we continually show we're fighting sin. I remember reading years ago about a woman who went into a store, she was buying a shirt and the tag said shrink resistant. She thought for a moment, shrink resistant, what exactly does that mean? So she asked the the salesperson, "What what does shrink resistant mean? The salesperson says, it will shrink, but it doesn't want to. <laughs> As Christians, we're supposed to be sin resistant, right? Listen, you will still sin because you're, of your flesh and your depravity and, be, and because of your humanity and brokenness. But you should be sin resistant. When you sin, you shouldn't want to. Right? There's this conviction, and when the Spirit of God convicts you, 
There is a confession. You're right, I'm wrong. There's contrition. Man, I can't believe, oh man, that's right. I feel so horrible. And then there is a change and I'm going the opposite direction. This, this is elementary. This is foundational. This is what we should be living in. Listen, the, the last, if the last time you repented is when you got saved, you're behind. Because we are to live in repentance. You know, if, how many of you sin at least once a day? Some of you are like, ah, she does, I know that. Listen, if you one sin a day for 20 years, that adds up, right? But staying in a right relationship with God, because sin separates, sin damages our relationship with God, that distance, that separation is real. That doesn't mean that you're not saved. It doesn't mean you're kicked out of the family. It just means you're not in right relationship. You can be family and not right relationship with them. Hello. You can still be in the family. You don't get kicked out of the family, but you don't get to be close. And God says, repentance is the way you stay close to me. Repentance is the way that you continue to grow. Repentance allows you to stay in proximity. And so we are to live in repentance every day, being mindful, Lord, bring to my mind, what is it that, that is in impeding our relationship? But then you have the other part. He says, repentance of sin, acts that lead to death, and faith in God. These go together. These are really not two different acts, this is really two acts done simultaneously. Because when I repent of sin, as I'm sinning, I'm trusting myself, I'm empowering myself to do this. But when I repent, I am trusting in God. I'm trusting in Christ. One, that he hears me. Two, that he loves me. Three, that now he empowers me to walk this way rather than that way. And so I am trusting in him. It is not promising. Sometimes people think that repenting is promising. I'll do better, I promise. I'll do better, I'll try harder. Guess what? You do that and you're gonna stay right here. That's why trusting in God is so important. You can't do it. You can't live the Christian life. You can't. But he can through you. And that's what he wants to do. So when we trust in God, We are saying, I trust, Lord, that you hear me, that you forgive me, and that you will empower me and help me to stick to what you want me to do. This is foundational, right? Can can you, I was thinking this week, which is super dangerous, but I was was thinking, wouldn't it be interesting if one Sunday a year, we all could come dressed according to our spiritual maturity. Wouldn't that be awesome? Nobody missed that Sunday for sure, right? We'd have five-year-olds probably who are in suit and tie, holding a you know, briefcase, mature. We'd have some 40, 50, and 60-year-olds with bonnets sucking on pacifiers. This element of repentance of sin and trust in God 
Though it is foundational, it is absolutely essential, but it's overlooked. It's overlooked. Here's the second. You remember Frank Sinatra said, love and marriage, love and marriage, go together like horse and carriage. Tell you this, my brother, you can't have one without the other. I think that was a theme song or something, but that's how faith and repentance go together, just like love and marriage. Second foundational truth that every Christian needs to know and practice, and it has to do with our responsibility as the church, baptize believers and care for one another. He says, instruction about cleansing rites and the laying on of hands. These go together. Now, my Bible says cleansing rites, but the, the actual word, some of your Bibles say baptisms with an S. The, the Greek word, baptismos, it is a plural, baptisms. And the reason he uses this word here is because in the Bible days, there were a number of immersions. There were a number of baptisms that were used in Bible days. Not necessarily in the New Testament church, but in the Bible days. And so there was this argument, especially for Jude, former people in Judaism, now in Christianity, there were baptisms, there, there was arguments and there were thoughts about it. In Judaism, there were a, a special ritual bath that they would do. And those who were Gentiles, who were converting into Judaism, they too had to go through this immersion. They went through this baptism in order to convert to Judaism. You'll remember that John the Baptist came preaching a baptism of repentance that was different than the baptism practiced in the New Testament church. Jesus, as he was ascending into heaven, said, John came baptizing you in water, but I will come and I'll baptize you with fire. Of course, telling them what's gonna happen on Pentecost. In the New Testament, the initial step of obedience and the initial step of recognition amongst everyone that I'm a Christian. The way that a believer would declare to the world and to the church in front of them that they are followers of Jesus was through baptism. It was a wordless sermon. It is a wordless sermon. I'm a Christian. I believe that Christ died in my place for my sin. I believe that Christ rose from the dead. And as I believe in him, he has raised me to new life as well. And the one day I'm going to spend forever with him. That's baptism. That's, that's what that represents. That's what, that's what we are saying. It is supposed to be the first step. Now, let me ask you, how hard is it to step in water? You probably do it routinely, right? You get into a pool or you do a bath. And yet, how many Christians have found it impossible? It is supposed to be one of those broadcasting and yet a low bar. You, you don't have to know a lot to step into water. You don't have to have a PhD. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to memorize the whole Bible. You just have to know what the Lord has done in you and how did he do that? And you have to have a delight to be able to say, I don't, I'm not ashamed. I want to be baptized. It, that's, that's supposed to be the first step of obedience. And yet how many Christians 
who are trying to obey some of the steeper things have yet to even obey in the smallest of ways. Maybe that's you. You haven't understood this is foundational. This is necessary. This is needed. Not to be saved, but to declare I'm obedient. Sometimes we swing, right? Because we know that some teach you have to be baptized to be saved. We say, no, no, no. It's Christ alone, faith alone, gospel alone, Jesus alone, right? And we swing so, well, you don't have to be baptized. That's wrong too. Because Jesus said, go everywhere and make disciples doing what? Baptizing them. The assumption is that everyone who says, I'm a, I'm a disciple of Jesus, you've been baptized, right? That you have submitted to baptism to declare Jesus is Lord. And that's what he's saying here. Let's get back, stop arguing about it. Let's lay the foundation. If you are a gospel-believing Christian, be baptized. And if you're a gospel-proclaiming church like you should be, help others be baptized. You see, in your family, if someone is wondering about baptism, you shouldn't have to get a pastor to talk to them about it. You know why? Because it's an elementary ABC. Do you have to go to your first grade teacher and say, hey, I have somebody in my family who wants to learn the ABCs. Would, would you be able to help them? No. Your first grade teacher said, get out of my face. You, I taught you the ABCs. You can teach them the ABCs. That's what we are to do. You shouldn't need a pastor to teach the ABCs to someone around you because you've laid the foundation and you have it. You should be able to pass it on. Now he says laying on of hands. That seems so spooky, right? Oh, it's really not. Especially when you go back and you look at laying on of hands, it was done in a lot of ways. It was to show intimacy. It was show connection. Jesus laid hands on those oftentimes that he healed. Jesus laid hands on the disciples or the apostles when he prayed and the Holy Spirit came upon them. The church, the early church, laid hands on new disciples. They laid hands on new missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, as they sent them out. Laying on of hands is a, a close, intimate, caring connection. What he's talking about here is just that. The responsibility of the church is baptism, that is making sure that people are in the faith, that we're in the faith, and then caring for one another and laying on of hands. Oftentimes when I pray with people here or really anywhere, if I go to the hospital, I almost always try to put a hand on their shoulder, hand on their back. Oftentimes when they're laying in the hospital, I'll just hold their hand. And I'm saying, I'm with you. I care about you. I'm close to you. We're family. We're in this together. That's why it's so shocking to me that we're living in a day where people treat the church like it's QT. I'm just getting in to get what I need and getting out. You do the same. So people come late and leave early so they don't have to talk to anybody, connect. I'm just getting here and I'm getting my stuff. You're missing and have missed a foundational truth 
of what the church is all about. And if you don't get the foundational truth, you can't build on top of it. And that's why we stay infants. Because not only do we not know these things, we certainly don't practice them. Last is the future. Last element here, readiness for the future. You guys are looking at me like, can you wrap this sucker up? Okay. Doing it. Our readiness for the future. Resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. That's what he says in verse 6, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Now, don't miss this. This is crazy. He is saying that the teaching of eschatology, that is the study of the doctrine of last things, future things, is basic. It's elementary. You teach it to new believers, guess what? And then you move on. How many folks do you know and churches that you know, this is the primary thing. They're just always in Revelation. They're always talking about end times. And they just want to always do Bible studies on the end times. And, and in their mind, that this is for the mature. And, and he's saying, listen, that's basic. Someone who is always in and studying, always eschatology, and always thinking about end times, showing infantile nature. That's not a mature Mindset, that's a baby mindset. He said, that's just a basic elementary truth. And yet, don't lots of Christians get wrapped up into that and they think that's what the whole thing's about? And it's not. And eternal judgment. The Bible says there are two judgments, right? One for believers, one for unbelievers. The judgment for believers. is really, it is a judgment not for condemnation, but one of commendation. It is where all of God's people gather together and God hands out the rewards for faithfulness. Understand this, I wish I had more time to go into it, but the more opportunity you have, the more accountability you have. The more opportunity to be a greater disciple, a deeper disciple, a more mature disciple, the more opportunity you have, the more accountable God holds you to being that. You realize you're in a church and you're living in a world where you have massive amounts of resources to be a mature believer. And if you don't, the greater the opportunity and judgment, the more accountability comes to you. And then there's the judgment for unbelievers. Revelation 20 talks about the white throne judgment. And they're not judged based on their actions of right and wrong. They're based on their rejection of Jesus as the only way to heaven, that he died a sacrificial death and he rose victoriously over death to give them eternal life. They reject that. That's what they're judged on. And the Bible says if they're, they're due to their names not being written in the book of life, they'll be cast into hell Forever. Your name written down in the book of life. As we wrap up and our team comes out, sometimes we pastors don't give enough practical. Well, how do I start growing again? I would, as I was writing this, I would just say there are massive, in my mind, I was thinking there are massive numbers of people who have stopped growing who need to start growing again. 
And maybe just maybe the Holy Spirit is stirring in you and you're like, well, how do I do that? If you just take simply G-R-O-W, here are four easy ways, four certain steps to start growing again. Get with God alone. Get alone with God. Jesus got alone with God, his father, in the morning. Got by himself. Are you getting alone, not multipurpose? Oh, I'm getting alone with God while I'm in the shower, while I'm driving, while I'm doing 12 other things, and, you know, and God's a part of that. No, no, get alone with God so he can speak to you and you can speak to him. Or read God's word. It doesn't have to be the whole book. It can be one verse. It could be five verses. But let God speak to you through his word. You say, well, I just don't understand the Bible. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit who wrote the Bible inside of you. He's the best teacher ever. Give him a chance. O is offer encouragement to other believers. We all need encouragement, right? One of the best ways to get encouragement is to give encouragement. And you will find that your love for the church, even your church, will grow when you find ways to encourage other believers. And then the W is witness to others about Jesus. Don't memorize a sales pitch. I'm not talking about preaching out on the corner. I'm simply talking about telling people when you have the opportunity what Jesus has done for you. How has he changed your life? This represents the body of Christ and what he did on our behalf to enter into that relationship we're talking about. And the gospel is that Jesus is God, sinless, that he came and wrapped his God in humanity and he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He lived a perfect life fulfilling all of the law. And he sacrificed voluntary himself on that cross where he paid for our sin. And he was buried. Three days later, conquered death hell, sin, rising from the dead. We're pausing for a moment to remember it's not about trying harder. It's not promising to do better. It is trusting the work of Christ for our salvation and also the work of Christ in us to grow in him trusting him and we're walking in obedience Jesus said this is my body broken for you take and eat and he took the cup signifying his blood that would be poured out his life poured out into us When we drink this, this is 
not some kind of weird thing of drinking the blood of Jesus. This is his life in us. My life in you, he says, take and drink. We're gonna sing together just to celebrate the assurance we have that we're in the body of Christ is Jesus and Jesus alone. The assurance we have we can walk in him is trusting him. Let's stand and sing.